Sunshine Coast Council acknowledges the Sunshine Coast country where this podcast was recorded, home of the Kabi Kabi peoples and Jinnabara peoples, the traditional custodians whose lands and waters we all now share. We wish to pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the important role First Nations people continue to play within the Sunshine Coast community. This podcast deals with topics some listeners may find distressing. If you need support, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Hi, I'm Caroline Hutchinson and welcome to the Sunshine Coast Council's Get Ready podcast. Throughout the series, we'll examine a variety of disasters and ways of creating a culture of disaster preparedness, response and resilience within our community. In this episode, we're looking at pandemics. On February 20, 2020, when the world was still coming to grips with a new virus called COVID-19, the World Health Organization announced that more than half of the known worldwide cases of this new disease outside China were on board the Diamond Princess. The $500 million cruise ship was stuck in quarantine in Japan with more than 3,700 people on board. Passengers were confined to their cabins in an effort to stop the spread of the virus. However, hundreds became sick. One of those on board was Sunshine Coast local and former Kawana Waters State College principal, Paul, thank you so much. You were certainly the biggest news in town this time last year, weren't you? Yeah. (laughs) We didn't know until we actually arrived back in Australia how big we were. Both Corrie and I were on the Diamond Princess. We'd finished our cruise and uh, we were about to disembark and then all of a sudden we got warning that we had to remain on the ship. And at that time, did you know why? We we knew only as it was announced that we'd need to remain on board because the number of cases that came to their attention were starting to increase. At that time in Australia, we started to take COVID-19 incredibly serious in this country and no one knew what lay ahead. Were you frightened of the virus? Look, um, look initially, uh, I guess um, we weren't. You know, we felt, uh, Coralie and I, we were on the ship. We felt we were safe because we, were, we had remained in the cabin. We were remaining in the cabin until further advice. And with all of that, we were very, very careful in our interactions with staff or crew that were coming to our cabin room. It was a number of days, quite a lengthy period of time before we ended up getting the diagnosis of being positive, yes. Now, how you actually got the disease is uh, still, does that remain unknown? Was it via the air conditioning vents? Because you certainly weren't in contact with other people on the boat, were you? Look, uh, we believe we got the disease from um, interactions via our food when our food was being delivered to our cabin, either then or we believe it could have happened even in the uh, bistro in the evening before uh, we were all locked down into our rooms because there were certainly uh, a number of passengers that were demonstrating some symptoms at that stage, but we, of course, didn't know. Then you became among the first Australians to contract COVID-19. 
Yeah, there were a number of Australians who were contracting COVID-19 from probably halfway through our quarantine period, which was 14 days when we were advised that we needed to remain on that ship. I was assessed for the first time uh, with a COVID swab. It was um, around about the 15th of uh, February. Three days later, the day before uh, we got notification uh, that Australians were going to be evacuated back to Australia uh, and we had agreed to do that, I was notified that I was positive uh, and that I would need to be um, transported to a Japanese health medical facility. And how sick were you? I actually had no symptoms. That's incredible, isn't it? And what about Coralie? When she got back to Australia, she also tested positive? Yeah, she was transported to Howard Springs. After about a day or so, she was transported via life flight that the Queensland government had uh, contracted to fly her through to Brisbane and then she was um, transported by ambulance, escorted by police and everything to the Sunshine Coast University Hospital. And so Coralie and I went through a period again uh, when she ended up coming home, but we had about a month where we, again, we were self-quarantining at some stage from each other in the house because she was cleared and I wasn't deemed cleared because of the shedding that was going on. So. Then by the time we finished, that's when the lockdown occurred externally. Uh, It it occurred um, in Queensland and, yeah, the world really started to change then. Yes, yeah. So uh, you went through it before the rest of Australia and then you had to go through it with Australia as well. (laughs) Look, I say that, but honestly, we're just so fortunate. Um, You know, being in your own home, particularly not in in a – four-bedroom home and right beside the forest, self-quarantining in that sort of environment is nowhere near uh, as bad as being confined to a room as as a lot of people in Australia have been, not, you know, similar to a cabin on the ship, they're they're in an apartment or or so on. And uh, just before I let you go, how many laps of the uh, cabin on the ship did you do at your highest rate of exercise? Oh, look, I did 15,000 steps a day. I don't know how many laps. I didn't actually count the laps. But, uh, yeah, I was pretty committed to having a target, having a goal, and that was really important for me. And uh, anything else that you think that people need to know in the likely event that we go through another pandemic? To me, the, the critical thing that was missing for us in Japan, that it was much better when we returned home. In any emergency, there has to be a clear communicator and clear communication. We had difficulties on board the ship because the ship would tell us something and then we heard something different from the media uh, and more accurate information from the media. The other message I would say is reach out to the services that we have here. We are so fortunate to have all the support services available to us here in Australia and to reach out if you need to. At the time of recording this podcast, in Australia, and in particular, the Sunshine Coast, we haven't really seen the full effects of COVID-19. Most locals wouldn't even know someone who's had the virus, let alone dealt with it themselves. However, there are many countries around the world that haven't been as fortunate. When this was recorded, the UK had seen around 4.5 million confirmed cases of COVID-19, which had led to more than 120,000 deaths. Jemima, my daughter, moved to the UK in 2017 and has been right in the thick of it, working as a paramedic in Surrey throughout the pandemic. It was super, super scary when it first started. You know, before we 
knew we had a case in England. Of course, we heard all about it. And actually, the first confirmed case, we had to get an ambulance to transfer them up to the hazardous hospital, you know, where they used to take people who were confirmed Ebola cases. Like, it was very, very scary. And so we had about a month where we didn't know really what was going on. Some people were coughing up blood. Some people had oxygen saturations in their boots. And we, you know, it, it looked like this wasn't going to end anytime soon. It was, and, you know, and we didn't have a cure. We didn't know, you know, what the, you didn't know the rhyme or reason. It was really scary. And of course, we had the issue with PPE at the beginning as well, where we didn't have enough and we didn't know what was the right PPE to wear and we didn't know if we were being protected properly. It was it was not a nice time. It was very, very grim, as they say in the UK. I remember I told you this awful, awful story and it was in the first few days where I went to a man in day seven and he was confirmed COVID and they sent him back from hospital. And we were, you know, under the impression that everyone over 80, 85 would die from COVID. So I was there at his house with his family. They were crying. I was tearing up because I'm saying I need to take him to hospital and he will likely die there. Very happy to say that that man didn't and we now know that some people are just going to be absolutely fine with it, except, of course, it does affect the elderly more. But they do say that when you get COVID, if you're not getting better by the 8th, ninth, 10th day, then you're going to have either long COVID or just not get better. And then what about now? I mean, it's, so now you've been dealing with COVID for more than a year in the UK. Yeah, so it's a lot less scary now because we know the treatment. And if we know someone's a bit more unwell than others in the, in the early stages, we know when to take them into hospital, what oxygen saturations we want them to have and what their treatment will be, um, which is usually early steroids. Anyway, over Christmas, you know, in the months before Christmas and over Christmas, you know, every person had coronavirus. I would maybe go to one person each day that didn't have either confirmed coronavirus or symptoms of coronavirus. And, you know, sometimes I went to a woman who had a pregnancy issue, but she also had coronavirus. Yeah. It was just, you know, it was nothing to do with coronavirus, but she just happened to have it. So obviously you're an ambulance officer and in the very, very early days in April last year, you actually came down with coronavirus. What did that feel like? I think I started getting the symptoms before we even went into UK lockdown. And at the time, you'll remember that I um, thought I had laryngitis because yeah. I lost my voice. I, I, was, I had a dry cough and I had a temperature, but I also lost my voice. And I, I truly, truly thought I had laryngitis. But because I had the symptoms of coronavirus, I was off from work. At this time, they didn't have enough tests for people in the UK. So I was in this weird two weeks where I couldn't get confirmed or not whether I had coronavirus. Anyway, for a young, healthy person, my symptoms were probably worse than others because I like got a little bit of chest pain. I did feel slightly short of breath at times and I lost my voice for something crazy like four weeks. Yeah. The other thing, which was, you know, you know how much I love food. Yeah. I lost my sense of taste for about six weeks. And, yeah. we, and, and I think since my sense of taste and smell has been slightly altered. Like, I, you know, I've 
I've changed perfumes and I don't like it because I don't like the smell anymore. It's such an odd feeling. And is it true that alcohol tastes sweet to you now that you've that has changed and it has changed for quite a lot of people with who've had coronavirus? Yeah, so I, I, to be honest, I think that's wearing off for me except for the past year or so, I'd use alcohol gel on my hands and it would smell sweet. It was It was really, really odd. So you would say most people you know have had coronavirus? Yeah, absolutely. Not definitely inside of work. They've had coronavirus. Yeah, and you actually had a colleague pass away, a fifty-two-year-old um, Ambo who got it and died. Yeah, we did, and that was that was really sad. And he was he was unfortunately, from what I can tell, just one of the young people that reacted badly to it. You know, um, there's actually this thing that they call happy hypoxia and I'm not, I'm, I shouldn't actually talk about this in relation to Peter Hart because I don't know what happened to him. It's called happy hypoxia and a lot of people with coronavirus can look like they're okay. They'll feel unwell but they'll look like they're okay and then you put the, the pulse oximeter on them to measure their oxygen and, and it's 50% or something, you know, something so stupidly low when it should be 100. So there's lots of people that that become really unwell having not recognised it because their oxygen saturation, they don't have the usual symptoms of, of having low oxygen. Yeah, right. And, and that's scary for you as an ambulance officer too, for all ambulance officers to yeah, that, not, not be able to take cues from, uh, visual cues from patients. Well, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and the, when it first started happening before we knew about it, we put the oxygen, the, the oxygen measurer on and uh, just think it was broken. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, because yeah. it was too crazily low. Uh, now, the vaccine has been rolled out since January in the UK and you yeah. have anecdotally seen a real change. Massively. So, yeah, I got my first um, on December 31st and I've now had my second, um, as has everyone who wants it in the ambulance service and everyone clinically vulnerable outside and, and over the age of 60, I think. And now, you know, they're getting to, to people even younger than that. And honestly, I can't remember the last time I saw a patient with confirmed coronavirus. Since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, there's been a monumental effort taking place behind the scenes to keep us safe. I sat down with Dr Penny Hutchinson, Paul Andres and Dr Rosie Muller from Queensland Health to learn more about pandemics, the plans in place to deal with them and the role Queensland Health has played since COVID-19 was first identified. All right, well, we're joined um, first of all by Penny Hutchinson, who is a public health physician with Queensland Health. Now, Penny, first things first, why do we get pandemics? Well, pandemics uh, where we get an epidemic of a disease, often a c- contagious disease, which is on a scale that crosses international borders and impacts worldwide. Why we get them is generally it's an organism, generally a, a, usually a virus that um, nobody is immune to. Now, where did these viruses come from? Well, they come from the animal kingdom and 70% of all emerging infections actually originate in animals. And uh, and I guess there's, you know, a lot of talks about Wuhan bats and things like that, but is it true that it is a pandemics or th- this particular one has come from human interaction with an animal? Well, that's what we think. We haven't 
made the definitive link, but that's what we highly suspect. And um, certainly we've seen it in other diseases. So you may recall in 2009, we had the what we call the swine flu. And again, it was an influenza virus that originated in pigs, but also in birds as well, and it came across into humans. Now, this pandemic, we're 18 months in, I guess it's fair to say, there is a lot of impacts across society. What, what would you say the bigger impacts of a pandemic? Right, well, we've got not just the health impacts, but um, a whole range of other impacts. So the health, I mean, it's the disease itself. Um, we know that it can make people incredibly unwell, and in some cases, people may die from it. Um, it can um, specifically affect those who have other medical conditions. And it also, because of the um, intensity of this um, pandemic, it diverts health services away from the management of other diseases. In a place like Australia where the management has been so fantastic, though, the bigger impact really looks like it's going to be a mental impact. Yeah, the mental impacts, I think, have been really significant. It's people having that fear of disease. A lot of people who've been diagnosed with COVID that um, I've dealt with have been very, very distressed with the diagnosis. I think they're a lot of, you know, very frightened about what's going to happen to them. Families are impacted because one is seeing loved ones who have been unwell or, or dying from the disease. And also with um, social distancing, there's that loss of connection with with families and particularly we saw that in um, the pandemic in Victoria with people in aged care facilities, their family members couldn't visit them. There's also the stresses of people who've lost their jobs. There's concern um, about the vaccine as well and there's a lot of fatigue around and mental fatigue. We're seeing that often with our um, healthcare workers who are dealing with this day, day in and day out. Mm, for sure. Now, um, at Queensland Health, you have been absolutely at the forefront on all those levels that you've spoken about from, you know, the public health response as well as the clinical response. You've been responsible for everything. So tell us about the public health response to a pandemic. Is it something you're prepared for? Yes, this is something that we've been uh, preparing for for many, many years. What we have mainly planned for is an influenza pandemic, and certainly we we had uh, have got plans in place for um, an influenza pandemic. We have a national plan that is in place, and then we have state plans, right, and going right down to the local level, the local health service that will have plans, and um, the public health unit also has a plan. For, um, pandemics. Something a lot of people have been interested in is the contact tracing. It seems to be so important and what you can find out about the disease that a certain person carries is so interesting. Can you tell us how contact tracing works? So what we do with contact tracing is first of all we get a notification about someone who's tested positive. We contact that person and we need to find out um, quite a few things. Just we, well, we want to know when when they first became sick and, and find out what symptoms they had. Then we want to know where they've been. So we want to find out where they may have contracted the disease. And so we go into quite a bit of history with them to find out who they've been in contact with, where they've been. Um, and we need to get lots of detailed information, particularly about times of where they've been 
and who they've been in contact with. This is very, so very important when we're looking at when they are actually infectious with the disease and they can be passing it on to other people. So again, we go through a very detailed history about where they have been, who they've been in contact with, getting the times and dates. And you may have seen that happening with, with cases that we've had where we've actually put that out in the media to get that information out to the communities because they may have um, been in contact with that that person. Now, the other thing is when we find out about um, people who are in close contact with a case, um, we talk to those people, find out if they have developed symptoms. Also, um, we find out they may have been in contact with if they have had symptoms. So again, you can see there's that chain of transmission and we're just following that chain of transmission. So the case is given to a contact who may have got sick and then given it to another contact yeah. and, and so on. So we want to try and break that chain of transmission. And when you can say about a patient, oh, well, they've got the UK strain or they've got the South African strain, how does that work? Does the virus look different under a microscope depending what strain it is? Yes, yes. So what happens is is that the um, the virus itself undergoes mutations. Now, these mutations can affect how transmissible the virus is. It can affect how, um, it, and this is one thing that they're very concerned about, is maybe is how um, a change in the virus might affect affect the effectiveness of the vaccine. So we get very concerned about the the virus mutating, and so changing where it may become become um, more easily transmissible. It may lead to more severe disease, and it may actually impact on the effectiveness of the vaccine. I'm hearing that we might have to prepare for the virus vaccine to be a bit like the flu vaccine, that it's something that you have regularly. That's right. And what happens with the flu um, is it the virus changes um, generally every year. There's, there's subtle changes to the, to the virus and it mutates. And so what we need to do with the vaccine for, say, influenza is we have to alter the vaccine so that it can be more effective against the changed virus and they provide protection. And that's what we're looking at with the COVID vaccines, that they may need to be altered as the virus alters. We might, may need to alter the vaccine so that they can match the virus and protect people. So Paul Andres, Environmental Health Officer with Queensland Health, what kind of planning do governments have in place for pandemics? Can you plan for a pandemic? Yes, you can, absolutely. Um, there's, there's actually a cascade of plans in place for disasters of any kind, um, including pandemics. And these plans, as actually Penny mentioned before, they're at the local, state and national level. Um, so health disaster plans sit underneath the overarching state disaster plan. Um, and then under that we have public health subplans. And that's when a disease breaks out. You go, all right, then we, we're going to put this bit into action now. Yes. Well, when we, for example, when we knew um, that, that we had this novel virus that's with pandemic possibilities, that, that activates, and they use that word, it activates the pandemic plan. And those plans are all integrated. 
So they they feed into each other and they have um, – sometimes it's a bit like a spider web, but they're all integrated, so it's very coordinated response. So Penny also mentioned the swine flu, which most people would remember as the – pandemic before this one. Yes. I guess that was preparation. You used a similar rollout in, in for this pandemic? Yeah. You might say it was practised, like <laughs> it wasn't deliberate, but it, it, it was – and I, I actually I'd say both Rosie and I were heavily involved with that as well. And um, so we – they have the Australian Health Management for Pandemic Influenza Plan. That's the national document and that was revised after swine flu. Right. And swine flu, you might recall, was in 2009. So after that event, there were a lot of complex debriefs because it was an opportunity for us to make sure we had our ducks in a row and, and that the, the plans that were in place um, could be amended um, and refined so they were better. I'm sure that when you're working with Queensland Health and you know exactly why certain decisions are being made, but then in the age of the keyboard warrior, you're having to watch people question why you're making decisions, why is this happening? They don't know what they're doing. That's just absolutely not true, is it? You have a very rigid plan and you knew exactly what was going to happen as soon as a pandemic was declared. There's always variables, but you, generally you, you've got a pandemic plan which has specific clinical and preventative responses that the agencies all get together on. We work that all the time. There's constant meetings um, and to make sure that we um, we can, if there is something unexpected, we can deal with it. So when we kick into gear with a pandemic plan, there are a lot of agencies that have a lot of conversations before it happens. Yes, and I'm actually on one of those committees. Um, it's called the District Disaster Management Group. There are many agencies in in the Sunshine Coast and throughout Queensland, um, and we replicate, um, but it's based on local government areas. So the Sunshine Coast has that committee I just mentioned. And the process of these agencies managing disasters is an actual escalation process. And disaster and pandemic responses both use the system that incorporates all of those agencies to manage the event. And we want to manage it efficiently. So initially, if a natural disaster occurs, like a flood or a bushfire, um, or a severe weather event, the local council's initially responsible for managing that event, okay? But if it, um, if it gets to a scale where their resources are exhausted or they need help or they can't, they, they can escalate it very quickly up to the district disaster management group, which I'm on. Mm-hmm. And that has over 90 members, which is it, it's quite interesting. They don't always come together at the same time. But that goes as wide as um, police... Telstra yes. um, councils, even the Coast Guard. Yes, and Red Cross, um, yep. Department of Communities, um, Main Roads, Energex, anybody, all of these agencies that may need to respond to something in a natural disaster. Suddenly become part of the conversation. Yes, and and they will draw on, the, the DDMG is headed by the police superintendent and they will draw on the resources that they need from all those agencies. So you have a massive bank of resources that you can access. In a pandemic you've got, it's a huge event, it's an international. The response escalation goes from uh, the Queensland Health Hospital and Health Service and the Public Health Unit up to the State Health Emergency Command Centre, okay, which is based in Brisbane. And that's another group of agencies, but at a higher level. So we can, remember I said before, it's it can either be like, it's like a ladder where if you escalate the, the requests as you need them and... Um, it's a great ladder 
because you you know you can you can go for something as small as a tiny flight up to a pandemic so and you can access all of these resources and agencies and they're ready to go and ready to talk to each other it's a good thing to know we live in a good country don't we we do. <laughs> Last but certainly not least, Rosie Muller from uh, the Queensland Health, another public health physician. So, Rosie, in the event of a pandemic, where is the best place for people to go looking for information? Well, that's a very good question, Caroline. I think in this pandemic we've had a really unique challenge with uh, information um, because of having a pandemic in the age of social media and the internet and such an explosion of information about coronavirus. It can be very hard for people to know what's a reputable source. There's a lot of unregulated information out there. There are conspiracy theories and all sorts of myths in the media, particularly the social media. So I'd really like to encourage people to stick to what we know are reliable sources of information that we consider the point of truth and primarily their government websites. So for coronavirus, the Queensland Health website is actually a really fantastic accessible website where you can quickly find what you need. But also the Commonwealth Department of Health has a lot of coronavirus information and resources on their website. There are also some really fantastic international websites that I'd refer people to, particularly World Health Organization's website and also the Centre for Disease Control Atlanta. If you haven't checked it out, have a look at the John Hopkins University website, which has an interactive live map of coronavirus around the world with all the daily global data that you would ever like to know. When the virus first broke or the pandemic first broke, I was obsessed by the John Hopkins counter, and uh, and you know it's become too big now. It's but uh, but it's and it's it's an incredible resource, isn't it? It is. It's really fantastic, and I think there's also some great broadcast resources like the ABC Coronacast with Norman Swan is is excellent for evidence based information. SBS also provides a lot of good information in languages other than English, which are, which is vital as well. Don't forget that your GP can give you a lot of sound information about the virus, about vaccination. And we have spoken earlier to Penny about people's fears around vaccination, fears around pandemic, fears about, around germs. GPs are great for those conversations, aren't they? Exactly. They're really the one of the key people at providing that general information and having a one-on-one discussion with someone about their own Uh, answering their own questions. Sure. All right, so what are the key elements of pandemic control? I mean, I know one of them is washing your hands. We all learned to wash our hands properly in the last year. That's right. And that's an age-old measure, isn't it? (laughs) So I think um, if I can maybe step back a little bit, I think if we're looking at control, we should first look at prevention, which is the ideal form of control. So in terms of what we call primary prevention, you know, how would we prevent pandemics from occurring in the first place? And this comes right back to really broad issues like looking at how we're using our environment, um, encroaching on the habitat of animals, uh, human population growth. Um, Safe animal husbandry, just the exactly. way we deal with animals having in, in, in the home, I guess. That's right, having safe animal husbandry practices. You know, that's been an issue with swine flu, with avian influenza and now with coronavirus. Infection control processes that we have in place are so important in preventing the spread of viruses in the first place as our vaccination programs. And then if we look at secondary prevention, which is 
if you have an issue, how do you prevent that from becoming more widespread? And a really key part of that is early detection and recognition. And there's a lot happening on the international level all the time in that field. So the World Health Organization member countries are all required to comply with the international health regulations. And this requires member countries to undertake regular surveillance and reporting to WHO so that if there's any evidence of a new or emerging disease, then that's quickly reported and other countries can be notified, responses can be put in place. That's a difficult one, isn't it? Because individual countries have their own responses and, and their own reaction to the World Health Organisation. And that's they something do. maybe also, we've learnt in the last year. They do. There are, there are various challenges with that. Developing countries don't necessarily have good surveillance, disease surveillance systems in place because they don't have a lot of resources. And then there's also political implications of reporting and that can be a barrier as well. All right, and then it comes down to when there is a pandemic, uh, the control of the pandemic. Exactly. So if we look at, at the national level what some of the control mechanisms are, then an obvious one is border screening or border closure, border restrictions of any kind, you know, preventing the virus from coming into your country. And alongside that sits quarantine and isolation. And quarantine has been successfully used, you know, for such a long time. If we go back to the Spanish influenza in 1918-1919, the quarantine station at North Heads in Sydney was used to quarantine sailors coming in or any, anyone coming in by the sea. And it actually was very, very successful in shutting out Spanish influenza from Sydney for some time, for the first period of a few months, which allowed the population and the government time to prepare for the response that they did need to mount when it did come in. So it's such an effective measure of preventing spread between people. And then as Penny talked about, the next step is then early case identification. So it's really finding people early, testing them early and doing the contact tracing around them. And if we can put that ring around a case to prevent them from spreading to anyone else, then well, that's been shown to be effective, hasn't it? That's what's been happening in Australia to date. And it's interesting, isn't it, because I think when the Australian government first went so hard with the response against the pandemic, uh, there were people saying, we've gone mad, you know, we're, no other country is doing this, but it has been proved to be the absolutely correct response. And if other countries had have done what we did, they wouldn't have had the cases that they found they had. That's right. And I think the, the effort that we put in early on has just saved so much effort and, and so many lives down the track that I'm really glad that that's been the approach that our government has taken. And last but not least, it's vaccination. There, there has been some uh, resistance to vaccination in Australia, possibly because we're so lucky we haven't seen much of the disease. But how do you feel about the rollout? So I think we're incredibly lucky at this point in time, one year into the pandemic, to have effective vaccines and to not just have one effective vaccine, but to have multiple vaccines on the global market now that are preventing transmission. I think in Australia, there's a real risk of complacency, but it's so apparent to me that at any time, on any day, we could have cases here again and community transmission, and we know how quickly that can take off, and especially with the variants of concern that we're seeing now. I think we can't underestimate how important it is to have our population vaccinated now before we do start seeing transmission take off. Uh, it's still a very real threat and so I really encourage people 
not to wait um, because even when we do have community transmission, then of course it becomes much harder to access vaccination at that time when there are social restrictions in place and perhaps clinics are overwhelmed with people seeking vaccination. If we want to go back to normal, we need to get people vaccinated and that's better sooner rather than later, isn't it? We do. And it's not only an individual consideration, but it's a consideration about protecting the people around you, particularly those in the vulnerable groups, your parents, your grandparents, unwell people that you know. A pandemic is classed as an epidemic that has spread over multiple countries or continents. It is usually a virus that no one is immune to, which has originated in animals. As we've seen with COVID-19, the impacts of pandemics go far beyond the disease itself. Mental health, the economy, education, culture and safety have all been impacted in one way or another. Health departments across Australia have had plans in place to deal with a pandemic for many years and it's important to listen to their advice. The primary prevention elements in pandemic control are to minimise risk through protection of the environment and safe animal husbandry practices. Secondary prevention elements include early detection and alert at national and global level, border screening and border closure, quarantine and isolation, case identification, contact tracing, social distancing measures, hand hygiene, mask use and vaccination. It's important to only seek information from reliable sources, such as government websites like Queensland Health, reputable international websites such as John Hopkins University, and of course, general practitioners. To learn more about all types of disasters and emergencies, visit Council's Disaster Hub website, disaster.sunshinecoast.qld.gov.au. It's your one-stop shop to find the latest updates, practical resources, and what to do before, during, and after an emergency. In the next episode of the Sunshine Coast Council's Get Ready podcast, we look at storms. Dadilipar residents Fran and Ross will tell us about their experience with Cyclone Debbie and I chat with Peter Harkin from Queensland Fire and Emergency. Sunshine Coast Council's Get Ready